thank you all very much. Thank you for coming. Uh, so people have been, uh, some people have been complaining about, oh, about the sound quality, some of our recordings. So I have this highly sophisticated <laughs> technological breakthrough called earbuds. And so I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to speak into the little microphone without uh, appearing too strange to you. So, um, I don't want to put these in my ears. I don't know if it'll try it. It goes nothing. Yeah, do you have a little clip? That'd be great. And a bib. So. Anyway, um, in case I spill my water. So, thank you all very much for coming. And, uh, Bhakta Das, our topic tonight is? How God is relevant in the modern world today. Is God relevant? Is God relevant in the modern world today? Hmm. We were hoping to have some of our interfaith friends here, but they're not here as yet. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just missed an inside joke or something. <laughs> Anyway, um, anyway, um, is God relevant? Of course, I think I'm going to sort of pull a dirty trick here and resort to philosophy. But um, so I, th I thought I'd talk a little bit about God first, about, about not so much about God, but I'll begin by speaking about the concept of God and how different people at different times and places in history have thought about God <clears throat> and whether we can make a reasonable case for a God <clears throat> and more specifically in this case for a God that's relevant to the modern age. So um, I'll begin with today, how people tend to think about God today if they think at all about God. Um, I think it's obviously true that um, any particular worldview or any particular philosophy that one may have, to some extent, to some extent is to use the sort of the way you're supposed to say this, historically situated in the sense that the fact that we are living in the 21st century, the fact that we are, for example, in Australia, which is very much a first world Western country, in fact, it's kind of West of everywhere. So, but the fact that we're in the 21st century in a first world Western country, um, and the fact that people tend to think about God in certain ways, um, is not a coincidence. Just like if you were born, let's say, a thousand years ago in Constantinople, you very likely would have thought about God maybe in, in, a, in a different way. Or if you were from some other, if you were, for example, born in India 400 years ago or 4,000 years ago, you might have thought differently. I don't want to, um, take this to an irrational extreme and say that <clears throat> people's theologies, their 
or their, um, their concepts of God are simply historically determined. In other words, people or everyone that is born at a certain time and place, therefore will think about God in a certain way, even if that means thinking there's no God, which is a way to think about God. Um, that would be a type of historical determinism. Determinism means that if you know the circumstances, the situation, you can predict exactly what will happen. So for example, um, let's say someone throws a ball and you know all the relevant information, exactly the force with which the ball was thrown, exactly the angle it was thrown, the atmospheric conditions, which also you have to take into account. The air was, so to speak, heavy or light and so on. How many meters above sea level you were, if there were prevailing winds. So if you knew all the relevant information, then according to the laws of physics well, or whatever, you could predict more or less precisely where the ball would land. And also you could predict how the ball would bounce if it in fact was a bounceable ball and it wasn't totally deflated. And so that's determinism. The ball has no free will to the best of our knowledge. There's always someone in a large crowd that will say, what if balls have free will? But anyway, <laughs> as far as we know, uh, recreational balls do not have consciousness and free will. So we'll just go with that for now. And so um, determinism, the advantage of determinism, or perhaps not the advantage, but the, the, let's say, the seductive quality of determinism, seductive philosophy, that's kind of maybe a new idea. But anyway, the, the, the seductive quality of determinism is that it gives you power, because knowledge is power. And if you have enough information about the situation you're in, and you can predict what will happen. For example, you could always win the horse race or you could, you could control other people. There's books like that, that, you know, here's how to get your dream girl or here's how to get your dream guy. And the idea is if you just like do all the right things and you'll, you'll get what you want. And so that's the uh, seductive or attractive quality of determinism that the extent to which a situation must play out in a certain way. If you know how it will play out, you have power over it, you have knowledge. And people uh, like power, unfortunately. You know, most people in this world are happy to get as much power as they can get their hands on. Whether it's the power of money and fortune, the power of other people, for example, if someone's attached to you, that gives you power over them, although there's always a danger they'll shoot you that you don't reciprocate. But anyway, so that's the attractive feature of, of determinism. And so uh, there is an idea which ultimately didn't go too far, just a few decades, because basically it was wrong, of um, psychological determinism. Psychological determinism means that we can study the human mind the same way we study bouncing balls or atoms or molecules or the way we, the way we engineer, let's say, a building. Or let's say you want a bridge, you don't want the bridge to collapse. And so you engineer in a certain way. And, and if you use the right building materials and those building materials were produced properly, 
and you follow the engineering plan, then it is determined that you have a bridge in which that'll carry a certain load and won't collapse. Someone needs to tell Autostrada that in Italy, but anyway. <laughs> so, so the idea was with the rise of science and the rise of rationalism in the 18th century and then 19th century, sort of applied science gave us the industrial revolution and so on and so forth. Then uh, people got the, what they thought was a really bright idea. What if we had a, a science of the mind? And so they even gave it the prestigious suffix ology, as in psychology. However, there are ologies and ologies, like there's geology and biology and physiology, but um, psychology never quite made it to the point of becoming a hard science for one simple reason. Human beings have free will. Bouncing balls don't have free will. Bridges don't have free will, unless, of course, some cruel tyrant constructs them of living people. But, <laughs> but bridges, as we know them, don't have free will because, because there is that fundamental distinction in this world between living things and those things that are not living. In other words, between consciousness and, and I hope this doesn't offend anyone, dead matter. So, um, so getting back to my original point, the concept of God, uh, I just took you on what was hopefully the scenic route, but we're back with the idea because I mentioned that people who are born and live in different historical times and places are very likely to hold certain views about God, positive or negative, which reflect the world they're in, their historical time. However, we should not carry this to an absurd extreme and say that people's views of God are historically determined. In other words, people are like robots and history, so to speak, programs them. So that your historical time and place programs you to think in a certain way. That would be going way too far. That's not what I'm saying. And for example, nowadays, let's say in our world today, we can find perhaps you could say a significant number of people who hold many, many, almost every possible different view on God, uh, from devout theism to agnosticism to atheism and, and all the shades in between. Still, having said that, there are still some features of our historical age which if you're born in this age, you, you may be inclined to think about God in certain ways. And so I'd like to review that because if we can, oh God, deconstruct that, I feel very intellectual now because I just used the word deconstruct. <laughs> Any, anyway, if we can kind of look at that carefully, the advantage of doing this, perhaps going through this exercise, is that it may free us to make the choices we really want to make rather than uh, being subject to various kinds of socio-historical pressure and thinking that we're supposed to think certain ways. And if we don't think those ways, you know, people may think we're dumb or something's wrong with us. So it's good to kind of go into this a little bit. So I'll briefly, I haven't really, I, I didn't plan this out, but I've been thinking about this for decades. So I will... <laughs> I have no idiot cards, unlike Ronald Reagan. So, that's, you know, they hold up what you're supposed to say. So I'll just, I'll just go over a few points. 
uh, a few features of our age. Uh, one feature is that, of course, there are always some people, they're always religious fanatics, just like there are political fanatics, too many nowadays, and there are cultural fanatics, because fanaticism really is a certain psychological type. I mean, if you, if you get a large enough sample of human beings, you get sort of a, 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 a full distribution of human psychological types, you're gonna get a certain percentage of fanatics, whether it's religious, political, uh, social, cultural, academic. I mean, they do not lag behind, believe me. And so for now, I'm gonna kind of put aside the fanatics because uh, fanaticism by definition means that one's claims go beyond one's actual knowledge or experience, that a person claims more than they actually know. But among people, let's say, who are not psychologically inclined toward fanaticism, which is this radical binary view of the world, the saved and the condemned, the fully enlightened, the fully ignorant, the, 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 the pure and the evil, which I think intellectually it's kind of not so interesting. It's, I think it's more a topic for psychology than philosophy. So if we look at people who tend to be a little more open-minded, um, I think our age is recovering from a type of socio-historical heavy case of post-traumatic stress disorder. Post-traumatic stress disorder occurs not only among, everyone knows that it, it simply means if someone has ex been traumatized in some way, typical examples are people who, let's say, are in combat. Many people who are in military combat become traumatized by that. Uh, people can become traumatized by experiencing some really horrible, violent event. It can be, you know, God forbid, an automobile accident. It can be all kinds of things, a crime, a violent crime. And certain relationships become so painful and that, that people can literally be traumatized by relationships that it, they entered into thinking like, I found true love. So, so you know, the various sources of trauma. So what happens is when the post-traumatic means the trauma is over, like it already happened and it's not happening right now. You're not in combat right now or you're not in that relationship right now and so on. However, it's post-traumatic in the sense that it's already happened, but it's a disorder because the, basically your nervous system has been stressed. It's like, for example, if you, let's say if someone overstresses any part of their body, their arm, their leg, their kidney. If you overstress any machine, including any part of the bodily machine, it breaks down or it, it becomes damaged. And so the nervous system is a, an organ of the body and it can be overstressed. And, and so just like other parts of your body sort of try to protect themselves, like for example, sometimes you may touch something hot and, and pull your hand back before you realize consciously that you touch something hot because your body is acting to protect itself. And so the same way someone who's been traumatized, uh, their body acts to defend itself. Uh, their mind, the, the nervous system acts to protect itself by being hyper vigilant. 
if you're walking down the street in your neighborhood, let's say you live in a completely safe neighborhood, there's really no danger, and so you don't pay much attention to things. However, if you live in a very dangerous neighborhood, then you're much more vigilant. And so if you've been traumatized, then you tend to see the world as dangerous or even unconsciously, and therefore you become hypervigilant. You're always you're sort of on guard because your nervous system doesn't want to be shocked and, and, and damaged like that again. And one of the re and so uh, one result of this hypervigilance is that one quickly withdraws from anything which could possibly be traumatic. And so situations which for normal people, not normal, I mean, traumatized people are normal people just suffering from an abnormal event. But let's say someone has not been traumatized may find a situation not at all dangerous, not at all frightening, but a person who's been traumatized may find it dangerous and therefore withdraw, whereas other people might not withdraw. So now the point I want to make is, because it's actually on the topic, believe it or not, the point I want to make is that if you look at the religious history of the Western world, certainly, uh, let's say from, uh, practically you could say from the fifth century, even the fourth century uh, of this era, up until, um, well, let's say for the next, you know, maybe one and a half thousand years, or a little less perhaps, that's a long time. Uh, there's a very violent and dangerous and traumatic religious history. And um, the entire civilization was traumatized by it. In other words, if you walk out the door of your house one day and see your neighbor being burned alive at the stake, that's, you know, shocking. Or if you see a witch being killed or, or just all kinds of brutality, all kinds of uh, unimaginable cruelty. And, and when you study, if you really study carefully at a serious scholarly level, like the Crusades, the Inquisitions, it's, it's very likely that it's much worse than you thought it was, actually. And so what was the result of this trauma this societal-wide, civilization-wide trauma in the Western world. One result was the rise of secularism, that religions cannot be trusted with political power, with military power. They cannot make political and military decisions because it's been too awful. And so you have the rise of secularism. And I, I'm skipping like thousands of details. There's not time, but I mean, there are a lot of historical details. But also, it, you, have, you have this, you have these, I guess they would consider themselves intellectuals, making this concerted attack on religion, like religion is the enemy. Religion is the enemy. It's the enemy of, basically, of, of civilization. Liberal civilization, not in the modern political sense, but in the sense of people being generous and open-minded and, and, and respecting each other. And so to give an example, just from the 19th, say 19th century up to the early 20th century of this like, you know, like use the term in Australia, dog pile, I don't know if you use it. America means when like a bunch of people just jump on one person, they call it, in America they call it a dog pile. But anyway, this like sort of this united effort just to destroy religion. Again, sort of not necessarily a great idea, but 
understandable in its historical context. So just to give one example, there's an ancient Greek myth of Hercules, where when he was born, even as a child, he's kind of like super baby or something, if you know DC <laughs> comics. Anyway, so Hercules was born and he was surrounded by these poisonous snakes and he just kind of like grabbed them and pulverized them and, and manifested himself as Hercules. And so Thomas Huxley, who was the, as they say, bestie, you know, really good friend of Darwin, um, he said that the priests of religion are like the poisonous snakes and science is like, you know, little Hercules and science was going to crush and destroy these poisonous snakes of religion and priests and all that. It, it, then there's uh, Sir Edward Gibbon who wrote a great book, well, important, I mean, great in the sense of its influence, historically called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And the background of this is that um, with the Renaissance, Renaissance, again, very quickly was the rebirth, Renaissance in French, it was a rebirth of classical civilization, Greco-Roman civilization. And people, were, and so when the, basically when Europeans, intellectuals, open-minded people, started looking at the Greco-Roman civilization with all its, its great literature, its super architecture and philosophers and religious freedom, by the way. I mean, going all the way back to Alexander, you have this religious syncretism that we're all worshiping the same God and we, we call it by different names. So you have this really open-minded, extremely multicultural. The Roman Empire was totally multicultural, totally multi-religious and had you know, amazing cultural achievements. They didn't have an industrial revolution, but they kind of had everything else. And so when they compared that to the Middle Ages with the brutal religious fanaticism and the intellectual totalitarianism, really, uh, they thought, hey, let's go with classical civilization. And, and another thing was, and this is kind of, of course not ultimate, they saw, well, why don't we go with our own European history? And so in that context, the question was raised, well, if that civilization was so great, this classical civilization with its amazing philosophy, its unsurpassed architecture, and they even kind of really dressed well, you know? <laughs> yeah, the man had this Caesar cut, which is kind of like really cool. And uh, the women, I mean, it was classy. It, it, was, it was a class act in some ways, despite all their own problems. But, um, so they asked, well, why did it collapse? Why did such a great civilization collapse? And so Edward Gibbon wrote this very important book saying, well, there's a very simple reason. The great Roman empire, which was, you know, in Hollywood, empires are always evil and people who fight against empires are always heroes. Uh, history is not exactly like that. Because if you look at, for example, the world the Romans conquered, it was, uh, it was very dangerous. There was, you know, constant warfare, and massacres and it wasn't really safe to travel very much and there weren't great roads anyway. So then Augustine sort of established what was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, where you could travel, you know, hundreds if not thousands of miles in safety and you could get a fair trial all over the known world for them. And so, you know, anyway, I won't get into that whole debate, but it was, so anyway, they asked why did this Roman empire why did this Roman civilization collapse, which was, had religious freedom, unlike us, that had intellectual freedom? And, they, and he said, well, it collapsed because it became Christian. 
message there, Christianity or, or religion, because they didn't realize there are actually other religions in the world they should think about. But the idea was religion destroys civilizations. And science, you know, kills the, po the, the poisonous snakes of, uh, of the priests who are the priests. And it doesn't stop there. Then you had, um, see, who else got into it? Oh, you know, none other than, you know, my friend and yours, Karl Marx, who, uh, I mean, perhaps his greatest achievement, is great for which we should all kind of be at least closet Marxists, is that people claimed to be Marxists or communists killed between 10 and 20 times more people than Hitler. So the fact that someone who created an ideology which resulted in the massacre of 10 to 20 times more people than were killed by the Nazis, and it's still kind of cool in universities, uh, makes you really wonder, like, do you, want, do you really want to stay or be beamed up? <laughs> anyway, so Marx, his idea was that, uh, you know, religion was a drug. He looked around the Industrial Revolution, people are suffering. Why do they take this? Why don't they just revolt? Well, because they're all on drugs. They're all just totally stoned out of their minds. And what's the drug? It's religion. It's religion. And then, so, and then, so all this is going on, and then the guy who kind of made the rubble bounce, as they say, was, uh, you know, chain-smoking Sigmund Freud, who, yeah, that was kind of, a, when I was at Harvard, by the way, that's where I did my graduate work, when I was at Harvard, I, I met this really nice guy, he was, a, he was a professor at Boston College, which is, a, which is a very, very sort of prestigious Catholic school, and, um, he had done a study of Freud's attitude toward religion. And what he proved in this, you know, serious academic book is that if you take Freud's own criteria for psychopathology and apply it to Freud's view of religion, his attitude toward religion is psychopathological. So Freud basically said that the only reason anyone could ever believe in something like a God especially like a father figure, which is just, you know, ridiculous, is that um, they must have had some problem with their own father. And so now they projected this super father up into the sky. And so, <laughs> so, so we just want to like tick these off. You have, you know, you have uh, Huxley, that, that, that priests are poisonous snakes who, who, who kill society. Given who says great civilizations collapse when they become religious. And uh, you have Marx who says that it's only because of religion that people are, don't open their eyes and actually get a better life for themselves. Freud says it's, it's an emotional disorder to be religious. And then finally, you have this thing called the Wiener Kreis, I think it's called in German. Do we have any German speaking people here? Huh? Wiener Kreis. Anyway, I can say it in English. I can't show off as much if I sit in English, but it's, it means the, it means the, um, the Vienna circle. It was a group of philosophers that gathered in Vienna around 1920 and said, actually, in terms of academic philosophy, philosophy goes on in universities that um, we should basically declare war on many metaphysics. Metaphysics means anything which is not empirical, numbers like God, the soul, even things like justice and equality, by the way, that's metaphysical. So everyone's kind of ganging up. And, and again, like, why is this going on? 
Because if you look back, if you look back, let's say maybe 400 years, or 500 years, you find that 500 years before that, that science and religion are seen as partners. I mean, Aristotle coined the terms physics and metaphysics. Meta means afterwards, what, what's beyond. The idea is that just like some people study snails and some people study stars or some people study, you know, trying to get a cure for cancer. So the idea is that there's obviously a physical and a metaphysical dimension to the universe. And that's easy to prove because uh, like, for example, how many, does anyone here not believe in justice? Does anyone here believe it's not bad to torture and kill innocent people? Does anyone here think it's, that's not, there's nothing wrong with that? Well, if you believe that it's really wrong, I mean, morally wrong to torture and kill innocent people, it means you believe there are metaphysical facts in the universe. They're not all, there's not only like, you know, atoms and all that stuff. And there are actually metaphysical facts in the universe. If you believe in equality, that's another metaphysical fact. So, if I, you let me do this really, I promise I'll do this quickly. I'll try to make it painless. Like, I feel like I'm giving you a shot, you know, this philosophy. <laughs> so in, in philosophy, there's a branch of philosophy called epistemology, which is basically, how do you know you know? That's basically what it is. From the Greek word episteme, which means knowledge. So you cannot enter into any system of knowledge, for example, take empirical science. And we all do empirical science in our own sort of, you know, little way. Like, for example, when you calculate what time you have to leave to get somewhere on time, that's, you know, that's mathematics or that's empirical based on distances and so on. So we all calculate. We all calculate. For example, when you decide what will be a healthy diet for you or, or your family, uh, you're doing empirical science. So, bless you. So, all empirical science, whether, you know, amateur or professional, is based on an unprovable assumption, which is that there's a real world outside your mind. You can't empirically prove that. That would be a, a laughable case of circular reasoning, where you give as evidence of something the thing itself. Because unless there's a real material world, you can't point to any material thing and say it's real because it's real only if there's a real world. <laughs> so empirical science, or you can say nothing should be accepted as true unless it's empirically proved. The problem, you can't empirically prove that statement. So if that statement is true, it's not true. And statements which, if true, are not true are meaningless. It's basically, in, in terms of logic, it has the same status as a square circle. <laughs> if you understand the English word square and circle, you know, if you actually understand what those words mean in English, then the term square circle actually is meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. You haven't really said anything except that you don't know English very well. And so just as a square circle is a meaningless statement, so too, a statement which, if true, is not true, is meaningless. And so, so why are you justified in believing there's a real world outside your mind? 
you know, why should you be considered a sane, reasonable human being because you believe that? Because in a sense, you can prove it. And the way you prove it is by, again, go back to Aristotle, who was actually an early member of the Hare Krishna movement. He, did, he didn't know it. but So anyway, Aristotle, Aristotle said that you can be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. You know, regress means going backwards. So I, 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 uh, for example, uh, you can tell your friend, oh, water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. And they say, prove it. Okay, put a pot of um, water on the stove, put a thermometer in it and say, look, 100 degrees it boiled. That's not pure water. You put something in the water or that's not real mercury in the thermometer. Then you have to prove it's pure water. And some, then you can say, well, I don't believe that's real water testing chemicals. And so you can be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. And Aristotle said, father of modern logic, that the way you escape an infinite regress of proofs is that you have to claim sincerely and justifiably that there is a fact in the world which proves itself. Just like you can't hold a candle to the sun. The sun proves itself. If someone, if you say the sun is in the sky, let's say it really is, not like today. Well, that means the sun was in the sky, but let's say the sun is visible in the sky. Let's say the sun is visible. Actually, I like this weather. It reminds me of Jane Austen novels. Anyway, <laughs> so, so let's say the sun is visible in the sky and someone says, I don't believe the sun is in the sky. And you point to it and they say, I don't see a sun. Then, unfortunately, sadly, that person is visually impaired. And every, or, or mad, which is equally unfortunate. But so, in other words, everyone sees the sun. So if someone says, I don't see the sun and you can't prove it to me, they are impaired, either mentally or visually. Something's wrong. And no one's going to doubt that the sun is in the sky because someone says it's not. Because it's self-evident. It proves itself to us. The quality, for example, let's say you see a, a sun in the sky, but it's on your computer screen, or it's in a movie theater, or, I don't know, Disneyland. I'm from LA. By the time I graduated high school, I couldn't take Disneyland anymore. But anyway. <laughs> so, and you know, how do you know that the sun in, in the sky on your computer screen is not the real sun? I mean because we actually have the ability to distinguish different levels of reality. We're just wired that way. And so now that's on the physical, that's in the physical realm. What about metaphysics? My point is that you know, you actually know, it's not your opinion. You know that it's morally wrong to torture and kill innocent people as deeply and powerfully as you know that the sun is in the sky. And therefore, in epistemological terms, your moral instincts are as reliable and as self-evident as the fact that there's a physical world outside your mind. And therefore, it is an equally valid foundation upon which to build a system of knowledge. And so what we have to ask ourselves is, since it is the case, as we all know, that some things really are good and some things really are bad, what does that mean about the universe? First of all, it means we all live 
And we know we live, if we take a minute to think about it, in a bi-dimensional universe. There is not only a physical universe, there is a metaphysical universe, which is equally real. In fact, it's more real, which I can prove to you very easily, that actually it's more real to practically everyone. The proof is very simple. Take the system of government in Australia. Um, you have two set of facts. One set of facts is empirical, that everyone is not equal. In fact, no one is equal to anyone else. Everyone is different. If you look at our musical abilities, our mathematical abilities, uh, artistic abilities, administrative abilities, emotional IQ, athletic abilities, look wherever you want. There is no conceivable empirical test you could give to the people of Australia that would show they're all equal. In fact, you couldn't even, you couldn't even imagine a test like that. And yet, then you have a metaphysical fact that somehow we're all equal. Totally metaphysical fact, totally non-empirical. Now the simple point here is that the people of Australia and America and Canada and even non-English speaking countries, you know, all over the world, so many countries have decided that the metaphysical fact is more important and more real than the obvious physical fact. In other words, we're not going to have a government based on our obvious empirical inequality. Instead, we're going to have a society, a civilization, a government, a social system, a justice system, based on an absolutely metaphysical, non-empirical fact that we're equal. So as they say, where the rubber meets the road, we choose to base our whole civilization on a metaphysical fact, not the empirical evidence. So we not only live in a bi-dimensional universe, we actually privilege the metaphysical over the physical. So now, uh, getting back to God, come on in. We're playing by Aussie rules here. <laughs> so, um, then you have to ask yourself, what kind of universe do we live in if it's, first of all, bi-dimensional in the ontological sense, the nature of existence, we live in a bi-dimensional universe in which the non-empirical, the metaphysical is ultimately more important to us. And in a sense, more real. Because we know empirically we're not equal, and yet our equality is more real to us. Because if it was not more real, why would we base our society on it? And so therefore, how do you explain that? How do you explain that you live in a bi-dimensional universe? And uh, my suggestion is you haven't got a snowball's chance in hell <laughs> to explain that if you don't start seriously thinking about something like God. And, and again, if you look at the history of the West, which I kind of went over, uh, it's very easy to, the, the, this idea that if we accept God at all, uh, we don't allow anyone to say that this conception of God is in any way more complete uh, than another conception. Why? Because post-traumatic stress disorder, hypervigilance. Now, you take any academic department, it can be biology, history, political science, physics, 
if you make a rule that everyone is equally right and no one has a better idea than anyone else, you're gonna get some really bad physics, really bad history. Imagine they did that in medical science. I mean, you can, it, it, it's precisely the process of, with mutual respect, according to fair rules, debating and looking at things that we actually come to more clear thinking in every human field. And, and, and so it's, it's considered to be practically barbaric nowadays to claim that a particular idea may be somehow philosophically more complete than another idea. This is not fanaticism. This is not going back to the barbarism of saying, I have the living God, you have a dead God, this is a true religion, you have a false religion. I'm not going back to that barbarism. And so there's another distinction which really has to be introduced here. And that is, uh, some of you have been following my little tour in Australia, sorry for the reruns, just imagine you're watching I Love Lucy or something, so. <laughs> there's a very, there's a very important distinction, which I, it kind of came to me one day. I was completely sober. <laughs> there's a distinction between um, tribal monotheism and philosophical monotheism. They're very different. Tribal monotheism means I believe in one God and my God can beat up your God or my God really lives and your God doesn't exist, it's just your delusion, or maybe even worse than that, I mean, you, you would be lucky if your God was an illusion, your God is actually the devil. <laughs> you should be so lucky that your God doesn't exist. And so, <laughs> whereas, <coughs> excuse me, philosophical monotheism, philosophical monotheism is, just what it sounds like. So for example, if I'm a fanatic and I say that, and, and usually when you look at tribal monotheism, which tends to be fanatic and intolerant, when you look at tribal monotheism, first of all, it comes, it, it tends to be based on um, historical events, which by definition are unique. For example, if I claim, let's say a son of God appeared in this place in time or the prophet, or Krishna appeared at this place in time. Uh, those are unique historical events don't repeat unless you have one of those like, ooh, you know, Twilight Zone philosophies that everything repeats exactly as it was. But, but anyway, um, so historical events are unique. And so if I base my truth exclusively on a historical event that the Lord came or the prophet came or the son of God came, then automatically, other religions don't share that historical event. They have their own historical event. And if I am psychologically inclined to be fanatical, which is a psychological type you find in all walks of human life, political, economic, religious, cultural, academic, yes. And so, then you have these people, then you get like, like people always say, there's so many religions, they all say they have the only truth, they all contradict each other. Therefore, the only reasonable conclusion is that, you know, they're all, they're all nuts. And this, of course, is, is, is an amazingly straw man argument. It, 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 it's, 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 a, 
kind of a pathetic argument. First of all, if anyone says that, the first thing you know is they've never studied world religions seriously. Because you cannot study world religion seriously and, and make statements like that. Just like you cannot study world history and say that religion has caused most of the wars. Uh, that means people are just ignorant of everything, basically except Europe since the Middle Ages. Because if you look at the ancient world, whether in the Greco-Roman civilization, certainly India up until today, and uh, many other parts of the world, they didn't fight religious wars. And in the 20th century, where we had the first really truly, truly secular wars in centuries, it was the most brutal, cruel, uh, destructive, murderous century ever. So the first secular century was the worst. So philosophical monotheism, philosophical monotheism means that if I believe there's one God and you believe there's one God, and there are good philosophical reasons for this, by the way, then uh, we may have our own historical narratives, like, well, I believe the divine appeared in this place at that time. You may have a different version of it, but philosophically, it doesn't matter. Because philosophically, we agree with each other. So you could say, why go with monotheism? Why not polytheism? Why not all the other? Well, because uh, if... I would say that if a person is not interested in finding the ultimate, the, the simplest expression of truth, they're not really acting rationally. And this can be true, it's not just religion, what about physics? If you work in the field of physics and you have some equation that takes a few blackboards to write out, and if someone else can say the same thing, like you know, one line, they win. That's called, in philosophy, it's called parsimony which means that you know, don't unnecessarily multiply proofs and definitions. It's called Occam's razor. There was an ancient philosopher, Occam, that said just like, you know, for example, if someone says, how much of the pie do you want? And I say, oh, maybe give me 120, 240th. <laughs> you know, why not just say, give me half the pie? So it's the idea. I mean, just like all of you probably have suffered, you know, sometimes you talk to somebody and they, they take like a thousand words to say, and all you want to know is like, is it yes or no? Or... <laughs> and so the idea here is that if you are a rational human being and you are trying to understand the source of your existence, because I mean, why wouldn't you? What if you... I always like science fiction. Imagine you suddenly like woke up on some planet and you didn't know how you got there and you'd want to know, well, how did I get here? What am I doing on this planet? And so we did just wake up on a planet. And if you don't care where you came from or what's the source of everything, you know, like the old, I don't know if you, maybe it's, some of you might be a little older, may remember this. There was like a typical joke back in the 50s and 60s where you know, some alien lands on Earth and says, take me to your leader. And it's kind of, you're not laughing, so obviously you're too, you're, <laughs> you're too young to appreciate that. So anyway, the idea is, I mean, don't you want to know where you came from? Because if you don't know where you came from, how do you know where you're going? And 
if, 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 you, if someone says, well, you came from, you know, 376,000 gods and goddesses, well, you didn't really answer the question. Even if you look at polytheisms around the world, because we can look, you know, wherever you want to look, we can look at ancient, South, you know, Southern Europe, Greco-Romans, you look at Scandinavia, Japan, Polynesia, anywhere you want. You know, if you look at ancient, if you look at polytheisms, even the polytheism of the Bible, by the way, because if you read the Old Testament, this is, again, standard academic understanding. If you look at the Old Testament, there are, there are many gods. It's just that there's one that you have to take most seriously. It, it's right at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Doesn't mean, doesn't say there are no other gods. It says get them in the right order. <laughs> but if you, and actually there are other passages in the Old Testament that, um, that actually list the names of other gods. The great wise King Solomon uh, married a non-Jewish bride, princess, and she worshiped her pagan gods. Did he execute her? Did he torture her until she converted? What did he do? He built her a shrine. He built her a shrine right on the Temple Mount. Why? Because he respected her religion, obviously. Otherwise, why would he build her a shrine? <laughs> But if you look at polytheisms around the world, what you find is almost always they refer to something beyond the pantheon. Pantheon, Greek, pan, all, all the gods, pantheon. And, and, and so even in these ancient polytheisms, there's an understanding that ultimately there has to be a more simple source. This is not the ultimate source. And so if you're a philosopher and you're trying to find the simple truth that explains all truths, or if you're in physics, you want to find the equation that explains all equations, you're not going to be happy with polytheism because it doesn't explain anything. It just doesn't explain anything. So if you're not trying to find one source, you're just, what it, if someone's not trying to find it, it simply, it simply means they're not interested in the great project of human life, which is the rational investigation of reality. Rational investigation of, if you're not, if that, you say, well, nah, I'd rather go to the, you know, I'd rather go to a basketball game. That's okay. Everyone, you know, is entitled to do what they want. It just means you're not really a, a participant in the great discussion about what reality is. And so again, even if, I mean, some people don't like the word God, usually because they have some unpleasant experience in their, you know, their youth or something, but but the point is trying to find the ultimate source of everything. I mean, even if you look at someone as, anyway, I won't make any sarcastic remarks about Martin Heidegger. But Martin Heidegger, the German philosopher, he, um, you know, he said, well, really what we should think about, we think about is existence itself, not different things that exist, but just existence itself. The fact that you exist and the fact that everything that exists somehow exist in the same way you do and that's why we're all in the same universe or we're all in the same multiverse or we're all in the same multi-dimensional reality within which the multiverse is just like a little you know a little item and yet all these we all share existence how is it we all share existence you know and and where does all this existence come from and why is it that we live in a universe of art I mean, look at magnified pictures of, of, of water crystals, snowflakes, sand grains, and everywhere you'll find art. 
look at blown up pictures of insects and you, you realize where George Lucas got the idea for the great, you know, alien bar scene in the first Star Wars. <laughs> and, so, and so everywhere you look, we live in a universe of art. We live in a universe of fantastic, super unbelievable engineering. They now know that cells, like individual cells in your body have motors. Everyone knows that when the wind blows and the rain falls and there's seismic activity, nature spontaneously, independently produces engines and computers and all kinds of sophisticated objects, right? Or maybe not. And so if you look at the way your own body is engineered, it, 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 it dwarfs the technology of any supercomputer. So it's not only the brilliant engineering, it's the incredible art. It's the fact that we're conscious and what is consciousness is not a physical object. It's the fact that we are wired in such a way that we even want to know these things. Of course, then there's another argument, which I find in terms of logic, pathetic, which is that people, uh, they, they believe in God because they need it. It's like a crutch. Freud probably would really be happy with that explanation. Now, this argument, first of all, it, it's, it's very silly because it doesn't consider the fact that if you look at all your needs, practically in every case, if you're reasonably healthy and emotionally healthy human being, practically all your needs are indications of real things that exist in the world. I mean, by the same logic that you feel a need for God, so you create it, we can easily prove by analogy that when you feel thirsty, you just imagine water. There's no such thing as water, but because you feel thirsty, you imagine you're drinking water. Or when you're hungry, you imagine you're eating food. When you're tired, you imagine you're resting. When you feel a need for friendship, you imagine you have friends in the world. Because the argument is that when you, need, when you feel a need for something, you create the thing you think that you believe you need. But in fact, when we look at the real world, what we find is that practically all of our felt needs are signals, you could say from the universe, be very contemporary here. As if, anyway, I won't go into that whole thing. They're actually signals from nature that there's a real thing out there and you should go and get it. So why wouldn't the need for some kind of divine explanation be exactly analogous to all our other needs. Why say that all of our needs are, are signals of real things that we should get, but the, this one need, the need I feel for God, is just delusion? What's the logic there? There's no logic, it's, it's a bad argument. So I guess I'm going through all this because uh, I think the point is we should all feel free to be rational human beings and to try to understand where we come from and what God is. And we should not do so fanatically. There are two kinds of fanaticisms, positive and negative. One fanaticism is I have the only truth and everyone else is going to the devil or wherever they're going. Or maybe they're, they're gonna spend all eternity you know, stuck in traffic in Los Angeles or something. <laughs> or Sydney. Yeah. What's that? Oh, Melbourne is 
Melbourne is Melbourne. delightful compared to Sydney in terms of traffic. I probably just made a lot of enemies in Sydney, but anyway, so we should not be intimidated by all these bad arguments. And because we live in a bi-dimensional universe, if you want to be a hard materialist, which means there's nothing but matter, you have to give up. And if you say you don't want to be a hypocrite, you have to completely abandon the idea that there's anything wrong with torturing and killing innocent people. Because if there's nothing but matter in the world, then there cannot be any objective moral views because values and morals are metaphysical. You have to give up the view that powerful people should not enslave and exploit people less powerful. You have nothing to say to those people. As, as you should know, one of the biggest fans of Darwin, I'm, I'm not saying there's no evolution, I'm just saying that it's a much bigger picture than, but one of, the, one of Darwin's biggest fans, of course, was none other than Adolf Hitler. And Hitler was sure, as all fanatical Darwinists must be, that there was something very natural about the Nazi project. Because if he could, in fact, you know, kill everyone that didn't look like him and slave a bunch of people, if he's able to do it, then it was just nature working its, you know, working its, working out its laws. So if you are okay with uh, having nothing to say to uh, people that commit genocide or just plain murder, if you think, if you're willing to give up any idea of equality or justice, if that means nothing to you, then you could you know, become a real materialist because that's what you have to accept. It's part of the package. And if you think there are real facts in the world, like that it is wrong to torture and kill innocent people, that there is a real sense in which we're equal, then uh, you live in a bi-dimensional universe and you've got to figure out how that could possibly be true. And as I said, if you're, not, if, if you're willing to be rational and, and, and not, you know, let's say, let your psychology determine your philosophy, which is a bad idea, you know, the facts of the matter, logic, reason should determine philosophy, not my individual psychology. So if, if your philosophy is not twisted by your psychology, then you're going to see immediately that philosophically, I should look for a single reality which explains all other reality. Since all things, and, and you know, you can call it God or whatever. Someone, that's a trigger for somebody, you know, use some other word. Call it the divine avocado or something, whatever you want. But, <laughs> but the fact is the same. So as far as the last point, just so you don't think that uh, I forgot the topic. <laughs> as far as the question, is God relevant to the world? I mean... Is that a serious question? It's, if there is a God, a God worth knowing, uh, in other words, God who's actually the source of everything and absolute truth, then, then God is infinitely relevant. Infinitely relevant. Because, I mean, now, if there's a, let's say if there's a creator of the world who's just a nasty, bad person, let's say we have the terrible luck to be in a universe with a sociopathic God. Uh, 
really bad luck. Major bummer. So, <laughs> but if we look at the universe, or just look at your own life, what you will find in your own life is that the more virtuous you are, the kinder you are, the more compassionate you are, the happier you are. And in fact, even the healthier you are, as studies now show. So therefore, if we live in a world in which virtue produces happiness, virtue even produ it produces mental health, physical health, that tells you something about where it all comes from. If, for example, well, it is the case. If you meet someone that treats you like an object, doesn't treat you like a person, do you think that person is very evolved? Someone's totally insensitive to you as a person. So if you look at the hierarchy of life going, let's say to the simple, I mean, I don't want to offend any E. coli's of any of you. E. coli is a very simple organism. It's like a one cell organism. It's like the bottom of the food chain. So uh, anyway, you, you can never, someone here might have a pet E. coli in my... <laughs> anyway, if you, look at, if you look at the whole hierarchy of living organisms, however this evolution occurred, and we don't, then what you find is the more evolved, the more intelligent, the more conscious, the bigger the brain of a creature, the more personal it is. I mean, when's the last time you ever met a, let's say a slug with a great personality? <laughs> but as we know, dogs do have personalities. Horses have personalities. <clears throat> Pigs have actually are very intelligent. Cows, I mean, and human beings, some human beings even have good personalities. <laughs> but the fact is that the more evolved, the more intelligent, the more conscious, a creature is based on all possible criteria, the more personal that it is. I mean, doesn't that tell you something? Why would you look at this trajectory and then conclude, well, if you extend it to the infinite, it must be impersonal. Where's the logic there? Where's the logic to think that the more intelligent, the more conscious, the more personal, the more capable of love? Why would you think that Ultimately, the source of all this is impersonal. And why would an impersonal God create the world? I mean, that's actually logically, in a sense, impossible. Because how can you do something and not want to do it? I mean, who forced God to create a universe? So let's say if, if, if there's some kind of God that created the universe, hopefully it was done on purpose. It wasn't just some kind of like cosmic burp. <laughs> well, I guess once it's out there, I don't want to destroy it. I mean, but... So if you have a, but if, if there's some kind of God, whatever word you use, if there's some kind of God that creates, then that must have been intentional. And people have intention. If you're not a person, you don't want to do anything. <clears throat> if everything is ultimately one, what are we all doing here? Why would, it, why would it ever subdivide itself, you know, make a buck? I mean, why... How could there <laughs> the usual motive for something? <laughs> if there's an impersonal absolute deity source, whatever you call it, why are we persons? Why does life become more pleasurable, more meaningful, more loving, the more personal you are? So just we just have to look around us. The answers are everywhere. The answers, what do they say, hidden in plain sight? 
It's actually obvious that we live in a bi-dimensional universe, that there is a metaphysical universe, <laughs> that to explain that, just like they talk about a Big Bang, what's the metaphysical Big Bang? What's the source of the metaphysical universe? Why is there art? Everywhere we look in the universe, at the natural world, we see fantastic art. Everywhere we look in the natural universe, we see inconceivably sophisticated engineering. It's right in front of our eyes. And, and that's what the word yoga means, by the way. It means connection. The word yoga, we still have in English, by the way. Just slightly modify one uh, <coughs> consonant, but keep it in the same uh, phonetic category. From yoga, you get yoke, which means to connect. You yoke two things. I don't mean the part of an egg. If you, because to you yoke things together, you connect them. That's what yoga means. It means to link. So we still have the word, like, a, again, the K, I won't go into phonology. So, but we still have that. So yoga means to connect. It, it's like the lights are on here. That means that the, this house is connected to an energy source. The fact that your lights are on, the fact that you're <coughs> conscious, the fact that you're awake, that you're living means you are connected to an infinite source of consciousness. And yoga means to strengthen the connection. And that's real happiness. I mean, everyone here I'm sure knows we're not gonna be happy just by consumerism. I don't, can't imagine anyone here actually believes it. So, I mean, real happiness means that you, you open up, you, you acknowledge and embrace your connection with the source of your existence, with the infinite source of your consciousness. And uh, you know, then it's happy days. So, uh, is God relevant? Yeah, most relevant. And I think if someone doesn't think God is relevant, they're, with all due respect, not paying attention. So, uh, any question on these points? Yes, please. So, say somebody's made belief and say, "Yep, yeah, I believe in God." Um, but they're not convinced it's Krishna. You're right. So what would you say? Why Krishna? Why they? Why? Oh, it's. I mean, I wouldn't be unhappy if someone was trying to serve God and didn't use the word Krishna, and that wouldn't that wouldn't like ruin my day or anything. <laughs> I think uh, India is. There's a very interesting thing about India. And that is, uh, from the very beginning, I mean, uh, literally of history, because history in a technical sense means a period of time in which we actually can document what happened, as opposed to prehistory or proto-history where you can't document it. And so if we go all the way back, I mean, the oldest book in Sanskrit, perhaps the oldest book ever, I don't want to say written because it was first oral, but the oldest book ever composed was the Rig Veda which is written in this very ancient form of Sanskrit. So um, there's that famous verse in the Rig Veda that says that there's one truth, but different sages or different sincere people invoke that truth in different, by different names. And so the idea, if you look at the Indo-European civilization, again, I mean, Alexander the Great, apart from his uh, less uh, pleasing activities, he did have a one world project. He really wanted to unite the world. 
he wanted to overcome religious fanaticism, sectarianism. It's very interesting. I mean, he did have a good side. He actually brought scientists and scholars with him because his teacher, Aristotle, asked him to send back information. So, um, so the idea that we're all worshiping one God, we may use different names, that was very much an idea that Alexander had. He wasn't the only one. The Romans very powerfully had that. The Roman emperor would actually give donations on a regular basis to so many different religions, including a monthly donation to the uh, temple in Jerusalem because they recognized they're all legitimate channels to divine power. And in India, you, you have this uh, going way back, even much earlier. And so, um, so among people who respect each other, see, once you get into this toxic, horrible language of living gods and dead gods and true religions and false religions, you can't talk, there's nothing to talk about. What are you gonna talk about? But among people who respect each other and who acknowledge that, yes, you actually are connected to God. You have a, you're on a real path. And you think the same about me, there can be a conversation. So I, I think, you know, we could talk and it's not that, not, not talk to try to convince you to reject your God. I mean, that would be absurd. There's, there's only one God. But Hey, maybe I can learn something from you. Maybe you can learn something from me. So mutual respect enables or makes possible conversation and discussion and people learning from each other. Yes. You know, I met this um, my body once. I guess, I guess it was my body. Um, I think they were, um, anyway, I won't mention what tradition they might have been from. But um, we were having this discussion around uh, personalism and impersonalism. And his contention was that uh, the Supreme is beyond personality and impersonality. It's something that we just can't understand. This whole dichotomy between personalism and impersonalism, that's something that we understand in the material world. But beyond all of this, it doesn't even register on our radar anymore. How would you respond to that? First of all, it's begging the question. It's not an argument, it's just a declaration. So I could declare that anything, I mean, anyone can declare anything, that actually the world is governed by the great pumpkin who rotates around, <laughs> you know, around the rings of Saturn. I mean, anyone can say anything. But as you presented it, it's not an argument, it's just someone declaring something. Now, if you look at what that person said, beyond personality, it's, it's begging the question in another way, and that is, um, it assumes. You see, a lot, of, a lot of times when people say things, there's a hidden premise. In other words, what they're saying is what could only be true if something else is true, but they don't say the something else. And so the something else, which they don't say in this case, is that personality is necessarily, and in all cases, limiting. Now, why should we think that? For example, uh, let's say, well, not say, let's say everyone's born as a little baby. Babies only have great personalities in, in the eyes of their parents. And everyone else has to say that, so the parents don't get offended. <laughs> but but as, as the child grows, and, and, and before too long, really, the, the child really begins to develop a personality. 
And then that personality develops more and more, hopefully, in, in the case of someone who's raised well and is healthy and all that. They develop their personality. And what evidence do we have that this, what could be called developmental psychology, what evidence do we have that this process necessarily stops at a certain point? Why should we think that? Again, anyone can declare anything, but why should we think that way? For example, in this world, uh, all of us you know, find some people more attractive, let's say physically than others. I mean, it's just, it's just you know, the nature of things. Like if you have to buy a house, you may think this house is nicer than that house. And so if we have, actually Aristotle gave an interesting argument in this regard. God, this is Aristotle day, right? <laughs> Those of you, if your ticket says Aristotle, you get a prize. You get a prize. <laughs> so um, here's an example that um, if we say, as we can say, that Darwin, Australia, is north of Melbourne. Uh, what does that mean? That statement is meaningful only if there is literally a North Pole. There has to be a point which is, you know, absolute north. Otherwise, you can't say this is more north than that. And so it's the nature of comparative degrees that they imply some fixed point. So if you say this person is more, let's say, psychologically developed, or in other words, then that person, because the more developed person, let's say, is kind, is generous, cares about other people, is not a sociopath or a narcissist, who are people who have obviously developmental issues. So what do we mean by that? Why can't that development just go on to infinity. And if you say there's something beyond personal and impersonal, what is it? You see, I can't, you see, then, then they pull this dirty trick called uh, ineffability. You can't describe it in words. It's interesting because, uh, but they think that they can refute everyone else with words, but they are not vulnerable to words. So they're like, it, it's meaningless. If you say, I have a truth, but I can't talk about it, then you're just not a contender. You're not even in the game. So, so why use the words to say, I have the truth? Well, I'm, I don't know if I'd use that exact language. Maybe like just pop a little prashant in their mouth or something, but... Um, <laughs> It's just, it's, um, it's interesting because once I, when I was, I was, I taught uh, history of Indian religion at the University of Florida. So I remember when I was preparing for the course, um, I was studying, I was reading this book about the intellectual history of India, including of course, you know, all these personalism, impersonalism and everything. And what the scholar pointed out, and he, he was not like an agent of the Hare Krishna movement, but what the scholar pointed out was that the people who say you can't describe the truth in words seem to write more books than anyone else. <laughs> and, and so it's like, 
the reason, but there's a reason why they can't describe their truth in words, because it's irrational and incoherent, and ultimately doesn't mean anything. I believe in the power of words. You see, it's begging the question in another sense, because if you look at language, let's say language, language is clearly a feature of personal consciousness. You know, just whether there are the uh, glorious swooping magpies of Australia, you know, who, uh, <laughs> actually it's not so, the swooping is not glorious, but if when I first saw someone in Australia, I was up in Corumban Beach up in uh, south of Surfers Paradise, and I saw some guy ride by in, in, on a bike with a helmet with things going up, and I thought, I just thought what I'd think if I was in America, oh, you know, some, that's nice, Oz has crazy people like California. <laughs> And because uh, if you saw someone like that in Venice Beach, you'd know exactly what, what it was. And then, I, then someone explained to me, no, actually, there's a reason they're wearing those funny hats. And so, so birds, you know, even animals, birds, they signal each other. They have language, not to speak of dolphins, who apparently are somewhat eloquent. And you find all living things signal each other. They have some form of language. And when you get to human life, it's possible to produce incredible language, just very eloquent and profound language, which really amazes us. If you read, actually one of my favorite uh, poems, I have to admit, is from the um, book of Psalms in the Old Testament. That Psalm that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I just find that to be one of the most amazing poems I've ever read and every time I read that it really moves me because I had to go through certain types of let's say opposition or hostility even among fellow believers and so the part where, where he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies the idea that people are attacking you and God just invites you to sit down for a banquet I just thought that was so um, I, I, every time I read it I find it very moving so what I'm trying to say is that language can be so powerful. Sometimes three words <clears throat> can completely transform your life and your consciousness if someone, if the right person says, I love you. That can be totally life transforming. So since language <clears throat> is a personal thing, and really the more intelligent someone is, the more personal they are, uh, the more <clears throat> they can use language, the more a person can express, the more emotion there is, the more enlightenment there is. And so because language is personal, to say that the highest truth does not have <clears throat> or use language is begging the question. Is begging the question. That means you're not really addressing the issue, you're just... So um, a world without language, a world without music. I've had a keyboard here right now I could show you. I mean, I'm no Liberace, but um, if you don't know Liberace, then <laughs> you must actually not be old. Sorry, sorry if you're not old. So. But the idea is, I, mean, I could just show you if I had a keyboard here, like like different harmonic. Oh, really? 
Oh. Oh yeah, but 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 I mean, just 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 different harmonic ratios. Like the first and the third is pleasing. The first, third, and fifth creates a major chord. And anyway, a world without music, a world without poetry, a world without love, a world where no one embraces. No one falls in love and no one feels loved and there's no beauty, there's no art, there's no genius, there's no, there's no nothing. And that's supposed to be the highest. And I, I just can't explain it, but it's the highest. Seriously? It's like, okay, I got the best thing in the world. Give me all your money and I'll give it to you, but I can't tell you what it is. I mean, you realize how absurd that is? Someone is saying that you should commit your whole life. I mean, it's your life. You are a unique soul. There's no one exactly like you anywhere in the universe. You are this unique soul capable of love, being loved, beauty, everything. And you're supposed to just give everything, your entire existence, to someone that won't even tell you what the ingredients are. They won't even tell you what it is. But yes, I will give myself, I'll give my soul, I'll give everything to someone that won't even tell me what it is. Again, uh, we're here to help you if you think that way. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's saying, you know, I can't, it, I can't describe it in words. That's just, uh, no, sorry. Yes. Yes. Oh, um, thanks for coming back. <laughs> uh, I'm just wondering whether uh, if there is such a thing as this metaphysics that is the whole fertilization, um, then beyond that, wouldn't the instantiation of democracy in different places um, in variety, wouldn't some of them come closer to that metaphysics than others? And therefore, Maybe we still haven't seen the highest form of democracy yet. Oh God, that's certainly true. I mean, I hope it's true. But okay, here's the point about that. Um, it's very common in our culture to say democracy may be imperfect, but it's the best form of government the world's ever seen. What's remarkable is that people that say that have practically never studied the political history of the world. It's just kind of like you're supposed to say it. So let's assume that we are equal in a very powerful sense, which is ultimately more important than our differences. Then the question would be, and this is a question for political science and, and, and historical study. If we study history, what is the best way to deliver equal justice and equal opportunity to everyone? The, the idea that <coughs> democracy is the best way to deliver that is not necessarily true. Maybe true, but you have to argue for it. For example, is the best way to deliver good medical care to everyone to say that everyone has a right to be a doctor? That's kind of like the logic. If you have a political, and again, I'm not anti-democratic. I'm just trying to show that Unfortunately, you actually have to think about these things and study a little bit. I mean, I mean, the logic is that if you want everyone to have equal dignity and equal rights, which we do want, the best way to achieve that is to let everyone have equal political power, at least in the sense of voting. 
But in the case of medical care, the best way to deliver proper medical care to everyone equally is not by declaring that everyone is a doctor and everyone has a right to operate on everyone else and prescribe <laughs> medicine for everybody else. That is simply not the best way to deliver medical care to everyone equally. And Socrates, just to problematize, Socrates said that just like if you have a ship, you want, I mean, what if you've got, let's say, a commercial airline? This is a sort of a modernization of Socrates' example. He talked about ships. Let's say you um, take a, a flight somewhere, and the, it turns out that everyone has an equal right to fly the plane. So every passenger can get five minutes in the cockpit, and you can do whatever you want with all the levers and everything. Would you want to fly in that plane? So therefore, the fact is, the obvious fact is that, and Krishna says this, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna talks a lot about equality, which I bring out in my book, which I'm supposed to do an infomercial for. <laughs> Hi, I'm from the United States, and I want to sell you something. <laughs> so, so the idea is, we all agree, I hope, that in a very powerful, ultimate, even spiritual sense, we're all equal and all that, what's the best method to deliver equal dignity and justice to everyone? As we know, uh, the so-called democracies have, are rapidly becoming plutocracies, which means rule of the rich, and justice for all, if you can afford it, and so on. And so therefore, it's a question. For example, one democracy, Mexico, has the highest murder rate, I think, in the world now. <clears throat> and um, so again, there's a tendency in the modern world not to think very much because people are too busy texting. It's like they say, don't text and drive, don't text and think. And so um, there's all kinds of interesting issues. And I, I'm not going to tell you, you know, so that, you know, okay, it should be this, should be that. I'm just saying there's a lot to think about. There's really some value in knowing history and knowing something about political science and, and hearing from other views and not being like modern universities where it's just kind of like a one-party system. You don't have certain political views. Basically, you don't have a voice and, and you'll be driven out. And so you know, there, there would be significant value in making, let's say, the best universities actually two, three, or five-party systems, not one-party systems that basically squelch free speech if it's not politically correct. Uh, because there's a lot to think about. There's a lot of interesting ways to look at these things. Sure. Yes. <laughs> Wait, um, um, yes. I just, I have, you were talking about consciousness before and how um, personality is the aspect of consciousness that comes out um, the bigger our brain is, the more developed that consciousness becomes. Um, and I wanted to see if you could talk about false ego. Um, and basically, what's left of our personality when we strip away <coughs> that ego element? A pair of cartels? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's a good, I'm sorry, it's, it's a very good question. That, that's, a, um, that's, a, that's a very good question. If we strip away the false ego, uh, what is left? Um, the real you, a bouncing baby soul. It's, 
let, let me put it this way. Even now in our, in our present state, let's say where we are works in progress, and I'm sure everyone in this room has a lot of sincerity and, and even and devotion. I'm sure everyone here has a lot of um, very admirable qualities, personal qualities. And yet we know at the same time that uh, just like you can have a bad hair day, you can have a bad ego day. And, you know, there, there, are, there are times when we, when we later cannot admire what we did or what we said, or the way we treated someone and we ourselves in, you know, in retrospect, looking back, cannot admire what we did. And so we all know that we are works in progress. And yet, even, even so, uh, a lot of who you are now is really you. Prabhupada uh, used to give the example that, let's say someone's uh, sick or injured and goes into the hospital, they go in with two arms and two legs and hopefully come out with two arms and two legs. And so it's the same person. So the more you advance spiritually, it's the word Krishna uses in the Gita to describe our present condition is that we are covered. It actually comes from the Gita. Krishna says, Abhritam Jnanam, Etena uh, Jnanino Nityavarina. Uh, that knowledge or just true understanding is covered by this, our eternal enemy. It has the form of lust or selfish desire in general, which can never be satisfied. So um, I can imagine, imagine a light or let, let's say, let's say the curtain, let's say you have a window that has a beautiful view for some reason someone has some kind of curtain fetish and they put like three or four layers of curtains over the window. And so as you begin to open these curtains, more and more light comes through until finally you see clearly. So, <clears throat> so you are experiencing yourself at the present time, but through this curtain, but it's still you. It's like if you see light coming even dimly through a curtain, it, that's still real light. Or another example Krishna uses in the Gita, he talks about Aditya Vajjanam, knowledge which is like the sun. So think of the sunrise. <clears throat> at, the, at the first light of dawn, you begin to make out shapes. Those are real shapes. For example, you may see a hill or mountain on the horizon. You may see a body of water. You may see a neighbor's house. You may see a field. And so at the, at the first light of dawn, you make things out dimly, but the shapes you are seeing are real. Those are real objects. And as the sun rises, everything suddenly goes from black and white to technicolor. And, and you start to see what everything really is. And so in that sense, in our present state, we are not completely blind. And when we, in fact, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, even the material mode of goodness, you know, honk if you like material mode of goodness. It's, um, you know, there's this idea, there's this idea that um, there's what we call the, you know, the mode of goodness, the quality of material goodness. And then there's spiritual consciousness, which are just really different things. They are and they aren't different things. Because 
there is, let's say, the pure nature of the soul of every one of us, our pure nature is just pure goodness, pure virtue, pure love, pure compassion, kindness, generosity. That's actually our nature. And when that goodness becomes tainted by material attachments, it's called material goodness. So, for example, Krishna says in the Gita, tasmat satam nirmalatvat, that because material goodness, sattvam, is free of gross impurity, it's enlightening. The, the word, Sanskrit word is prakashakam, which literally means enlightening. Tasmat sattvam nirmalatvat, prakashakam, anamayam, and it doesn't have any gross impurity. But Krishna says, sukha sangena vadnati, that the material goodness binds you, imprisons you, because you become attached to the happiness that comes from virtue. Because virtue, goodness, does bring happiness. And because we're not pure, we become attached to that happiness. Organisangana, because goodness is enlightening, we become attached to our own wisdom. So therefore, material goodness really is spiritual consciousness, but with some impurities. So let's say, for example, you have a window and you can see reality, but it becomes slightly fogged up. But so, so in a sense, it's really you. It's not that when you become enlightened, you become a different person. And a lot of the feelings you have now, I mean, those moments when you just have these spontaneous feelings of love, of kindness, of generosity, of compassion, that's really you. That's really you. That's the soul. That's not your inner beast. That's your inner soul. And so you have so many experiences of the real you. And you just have to keep literally discovering yourself, uncovering yourself. I think a lot of people feel that they will lose their, like we, we're such a personal sort of um, spiritual culture and we're, we're kind of clinging onto these things thinking that, you know, this defines me as a person and that I'll, I'll, I'll have this impersonal aspect if I, if I get rid of all those. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly the opposite. You will not lose your personal mojo, you know, if you, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's exactly the opposite. For example, I mean, I mean, consider your own life. Think of, I mean, let's say when you were a little child and just maybe wanted your toys. I remember actually, <laughs> this is funny. I just remember I was like four years old or something. I had there was a family in our street and um, they had a daughter my age named Rhonda Brown. God, I hope she's not listening to this lecture. <laughs> but she, I mean, she was, she was nice. She was a very pretty girl. Even, even at the age of four or five, I could, I realized that. But she was, so one time my mother took me to play with her. And I remember she didn't want to share her toys. And I, I, it's funny, I must have been like at most five years old. But I just knew that this is not good. And, <laughs> and you should share your toys. But so, God. I'm sure she's a wonderful person now somewhere, but, but the, no, it's the opposite. The more you become Krishna conscious, the more personal, the more you really love other people, not just philosophically. Like, yeah, I love all living entities. I just can't stand people, you know? So it's, 
But the more, the more we become Krishna conscious, the more we really do love other people. You really do. You know, just, and it's a joyful thing. It's not like some kind of melodramatic wrench. You just, you just really, really like other people and you feel this kinship with everyone. And, and you find out who you really are. You even get a better sense of humor. It's, <laughs> so the more we become Krishna conscious, the more you just become a great person, an interesting person, a, a joyful, loving person. The more you can just bounce back from any, <clears throat> any so-called problem in the world, it just can't affect you because you know the truth that everyone's eternal and everyone's going to make it. You know, some people may be on a slower train or in the back car or something, but everyone's going to make it. And everyone's going to have eternal happiness. And so it's, it's exactly the opposite. There's actually a mis misunderstanding. I think I should mention this because I haven't said anything like really dangerously controversial yet. And you know, people may want their money back. So... <laughs> I'll tell you how impersonalism creeps in. It can, it can be, it can creep in in a mythologized vision of a pure devotee of Krishna, of a pure soul. For example, the idea that, you know, everything Prabhupada said is Krishna speaking and everything he did is Krishna is acting. Therefore, Prabhupada's infallible, which Prabhupada thought was a ridiculous idea. He said, because I'm not God. And so... So if you, th if you kind of drill down into that, what, what are they saying philosophically? Because I'm sure you've heard this. What they're saying is that once you fully surrender to Krishna, that's the last thing, free act you ever engage in. You know, that's your last free act, is that I fully surrender to Krishna. At that moment, I just become kind of like a, um, you know, Krishna's loving robot or something. And, <laughs> And so if that were true, then we actually would know absolutely nothing about Prabhupada. We actually never heard Prabhupada speak, and we never saw him do anything. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's like those ghost movies where there's some nice lady that suddenly starts talking to a deep voice and smoking big cigars because some, you know, some man has possessed her body. So, so we actually know nothing about pure devotees. They have no personalities. They have no personalities. All the, they're just these pure channeling things. <laughs> so in the spiritual world, Krishna really only has conversations with himself. <laughs> and because everybody else is just letting Krishna speak through them. <laughs> and so you get the idea. So it's kind of like backdoor impersonalism or something. It's a little wacko. So when you become pure, you become more than ever yourself. So when we see, for example, that Krishna's queens, like Satya Bhama, who's very fiery and, you know, talks back to Krishna and, you know, but it's a loving, it's a pure loving relationship. And then Rukmini is much more sort of, you know, demure. It's not that Krishna just talking to himself. They really, they really are different souls. So every soul has their own unique, amazing, beautiful personality. And the more you advance spiritually, the more you become yourself and you become a bigger person, a better person, a more beautiful person, more loving person. That's, I think, our philosophy. So 
thank you very much. Um, any other questions? Put another coin in the meter, as I always say, yes. But Jane Austen. Okay, this is not going to end soon. Um, <laughs> I'm a writer. Well, that's pretentious. I try to write. And um, I'll tell you what I like. I gave a lecture on this, actually. I gave a lecture at um, in the town, in, in the village hall, literally across the street from Jane Austen's house in Chowton, England on Jane Austen and the Bhagavad Gita. And uh, for one thing, she's very God conscious. She comes from a clergy family. She's the last person buried in Winchester Cathedral because I mean, her, her, her older brother, her father, her uncles, her cousins, I mean, her grandfather, she actually came from a family of clergymen. And if you look at her six novels, in three of her six novels, the hero, the young hero, either is or is about to become a clergyman. It's very interesting. And two of her novels, the clergyman's a complete clown. But I, I think she has an amazing understanding, like an amazing grasp of moral algebra. It's like, like, like a, a very deep penetration into what real goodness is what authenticity is, what it means to be a good human being. And, um, and uh, in a very God conscious way. So I, I mean, from Prabhupada, I learned, of course, theology and philosophy. But I, th I, I think that I, I guess I feel a certain gratitude toward her writing because I felt it taught me a lot about being a gentleman. And um, yeah, I think just, just a, a very powerful penetration, understanding what it really means to be a good person in the human, in the human sphere. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so I really connected. And I also learned, I'm, I'm learning how to write. I think he's my favorite writer, I think, on rational grounds. I think, I think if you look at English literature, it started to get a little bit too self-conscious and full of itself as you get into the second half of, especially as you get into the second half of the 19th century. And then the 20th century, it's kind of like a write-off. But anyway, that's just me. So, yeah, I, I think she was really a very God-conscious person with almost like impeccable moral instincts. Yes. Are you gonna hypnotically regress me or? <laughs> Yeah. Well, then how can you say that? But you just did it. It's, no, but you just did it. It's never say never. You just describe God. Because if I say that God is beyond description, that is a description of God. Yes. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's something dangerous about a personal God that God may actually be the center, not you. <clears throat> you know, there's this term of being decentered because everyone, even people who are philosophical theists often are psychological atheists. Because if, it, you know, God is the center of reality. So get over it, you know, it's not you. And, you know, it's, it's funny because if you accept a personal God, you're not the most popular person at the party. 
So I think it's a little adolescent or pre-adolescent. It's, yeah, so are you emotionally comfortable with not being the center of reality? And it's interesting because we're obvious, I mean, someone thinks they're, I mean, you think normal psychology, where everyone is kind of the center of their own life. I mean, being self-centered is kind of like breathing in our world. And yet we're not the center of reality. And we know we're not the center. We're not geographically at the center of reality. We're not politically. I mean, we're, not at the, we're just not the center of reality. And therefore, to be self-centered is to be delusional. It's, to be, it's actually a, a psychological, a serious psychological problem. It's almost pathological. And that's why we're down in this world. It's kind of like the universe is just this huge clinic. And so, yes, of course, that's what it is, that, that I don't want a personal God because then I can't be a narcissist in the name of deep, mystic, you know, impersonal philosophies. And you see, I mean, you know, I don't want to be like, I don't want to hit below the belt, but as they say, but it is a fact that in America, all, there was this whole parade of Indian swamis teaching impersonalism in the 60s and 70s, and almost to the last man, they ended up, you know, falling into very inappropriate uh, sexual relations with their students. And so, um, I mean, just, you can just tick off all the boxes on that list, you know, of all the prominent impersonal gurus. And so what's going on there? You say you're beyond personality, but you're actually below it. Because if someone is a decent person, you know, you know say someone claims to be a guru, if you're just a decent human being, you don't engage, you don't sexually exploit people. I mean, there's laws against it. That's why teachers can't seduce their students. That's why, you know, mental health professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists, can't sexually engage their clients. That's why lawyers can't do it. Because the law, this is the law. This is not like some Hare Krishna philosophy. This is the law. <laughs> because there are certain social relationships where someone is in a more powerful position. And so to, to use that leverage to seduce someone or to sexually enjoy them is actually criminal activity in Australia and in every other country that has you know, serious laws. And so not speak of guru. You know, if someone's coming off like, you know, I'm it, I'm the divine incarnate or blah, blah, blah. And then, and then, you, and then you sexually exploit someone that came to you in that capacity, which had happened practically with every impersonal guru that at least came to America. So therefore, when you deny the personality of God, what you really do is you fall below the level of just being a decent person. You don't, you, they're not really going above it. They're actually going below it. They're going below personality, not above it. And the other thing I, I, I did you at the beginning was, um, yeah, if someone says you can't describe God with words, you just did it. It's like never say never. What do you mean? Because to say you can't describe with God with words is a description of God with words. Because the quality of being beyond words is an intelligible quality which is expressed by words. So it's, it's, just, it's just silly. 
Oh, last last one is last one here. Really, the last one, and then. Oh, that's a long discussion. Um, for example, <laughs> we'll just give one little thing and then I'll stop before I get in trouble. And that is, for example, I know that, well, I guess in Melbourne, theoretically, summer is coming. <laughs> so I know that summer is coming. I know the days will get longer until approximately the, uh, you know, I guess here is the summer equinox or the, yeah yeah well the solstice is the yeah you're right summer solstice so it doesn't mean i caused it you see the the the, the logical flaw in saying that god can't know what we'll do is the logical flaw the, or the false premise is thinking that if you know something you cause it but you can actually know something but not be the cause of it and you can even know a future event and not be the cause of it tricky. So thank you all very much. It was really, really sincerely a pleasure to spend some time with all of you. All right, Christian. Thank you. Thank you.